Well, last week, if you were with us, we started a new series of messages out of the book of Colossians that I shared with you really isn't a book, but instead, it's a letter. And we talked about that, at least in some respect, it's sort of like some of the letters that we write. You know, it's written by a particular person. It's written to a group, in this case, of particular people. Those particular people formed a particular church that was located in a particular city, complete with its own unique and particular culture. And then here was the rub 2,000 years ago. Oh, and it was written to address their issues. And by the way, as we sit or stand here today, its author is long gone, and those people are long gone, and that church is long gone, and even the city is gone. I mean, we're not even exactly sure where the city was. We know that it was in the Lycus Valley. We know that much. That's modern-day Turkey, so we got that down. And there is this place that we think it probably was, but the ruins are so scarce, they're so small, there's so little left... We're not even sure. Its culture is gone. It's like, how in the world can this letter speak to me? And yet it does. Why? Because it's not just written by some guy named Paul. It's written by a guy named Paul, who then appends to his name, an apostle of Christ Jesus. It is is written by a guy to whom the risen Jesus literally, physically appeared. It's written by a guy who was gifted and called specially to be God's messenger, and not just in the first century, but through his writings in every century, in our century, to you and to me. And you know what else is kind of cool? When you dig into this letter, what you realize is you're not all that different from these people. You know why that is? Because our technology changes, our medical things change. I mean, everything around us and outside of us is changing. But do you know what the truth is? Nothing inside of us is changing. Inside, we're just like they were. The human heart has not changed from the moment it left the Garden of Eden, and neither will it. So our issues are the same, our needs are the same, our struggles are the same, our stresses are the same. Lots of similarities. Human nature is the same. The Lord God is the same. His word is the same, and so it's no wonder then that when we open it up, it's messages for me, and it's messages for you. And what is the message of this letter to the Colossians? Do you remember? Because we boiled it all down and forced it into like a little, you know, acorn nutshell. One little phrase, it's know the word, live the word. That's it. And as we, Matt said at the beginning of the service, that's not just, you know, the, the big idea for this book or this letter. It's not just the big idea for the series in which we're studying this letter. That is our big idea for the entirety of this year. It is for you and I to reclaim this book. And by this book, I don't mean just the letter to the Colossians. Yes, that's included. But I mean every document in this book that we call the Holy Bible. Our endeavor this year is to become a people who know this book. And then who live it out? So to that end, we're studying the letter to the Colossians, and we saw that it's an ancient letter, and it's a lot like ancient letters of those days. It followed the same pattern, just like our letters all follow a pattern. And so in some sense, it's ordinary. You know, we see an ordinary structure to it, but then everywhere you turn in this letter, it's screaming extraordinary. And so the beginning of this letter starts with a greeting that's a totally ordinary greeting. It's just Paul. He states his name, Paul, in which he's saying, okay, hi, I'm Paul. I'm the guy writing this letter. And then he says something utterly extraordinary. He says, an apostle of Christ Jesus. We've covered that. It's a total game changer. It's the difference between this letter and every other letter ever written unless it's also included in this book. When Paul sits down to write to the church of Colossae and to the church today, he's not just writing the words of Paul. 
He's writing the words of the Lord. And so the greeting is ordinary and yet utterly extraordinary. And then it includes a thanksgiving because that's, you know, the next thing that an ancient letter would include. So that's ordinary. But thanksgiving peace is utterly extraordinary. Paul says, hi, I'm Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Pause. Everybody needs to appreciate that because now everything that's coming next, word of God to you, pretty amazing. And he says, I just want you guys to know that I am so excited. I was so thrilled. I just had to sit down and write you a letter when I heard about your faith, when I heard about your love, when I heard about the way that you're living out the word of God. He's saying, guys, you are a people who know this book and you're living this book out. And I had to just say to you, that's amazing. That's extraordinary. But it ought to be ordinary. It ought to be something that we could say about everyone who claims Christ as their Lord and Savior. For how do you know Jesus? By His Spirit? I'll give you a clue. Through this book! Paul says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, really excited about you guys. And the way that you're knowing and living the Word is really awesome. I was motivated to write you, but that's not the end of my letter because the next part of the ancient letter standard pattern form deal is a prayer. So that's ordinary. But what he prays for is unbelievably extraordinary. He prays that they will know more of God's Word. Why? So that they can live it. Paul, as we said last week, is greedy for the gospel, guys. He wants them to have more of God's Word, that they might live more of God's Word. He wants to see more life transformation. He wants to see more gospel renewal. He wants to see more life change. He wants to see more glory for Jesus come in and through these people. It's like he's saying, you know, hey, I'm real pleased about this little fire that you've got burning here of faith. It's awesome. It's exciting. It's not enough. Do you have any wood? If you have some wood, I'd like to throw that on there. When you run out of wood, that couch you want to get rid, rid of, just bring that out the front door. We're going to throw that dude on there. Drive the riding lawnmower right up onto the fire, and everyone step back because it's going to explode. I want it to explode. I'm looking for explosions. I want it to be seen from outer space. Know the Word and live the Word all the more, he's saying, but in whose strength? Because I can't do it. And neither can you. In the strength of Jesus, this is where we left off. In whom he tells us in verse 14 that we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And then it seems to me like Paul is so overwhelmed by that thought that he just breaks out into this dissertation on Jesus Christ, and it is utterly amazing. It's beautiful. It's incredible, and it's meant to be savored. It's like he gives us artwork after artwork, piece of art, image after image that portrays Jesus. It's like he establishes an art gallery. Have you ever been to an art gallery? It's fantastic. I mean, if you're into art, isn't it? He creates all of this artwork, hangs it down the walls and all down the halls of this art gallery. He establishes that in this letter to the Colossians. And he invites us to come take a walk, not a run, through it. When you go to an art gallery, you don't run unless you go there on a field trip and you're a fifth grader and you can't stand it. You're freaking out and you're chasing your friends and you've got to go to the bathroom nine times. And But when you go there really to see it, it takes a while. That's how you're to walk through this book. You know, the Word of God is not McDonald's, man. It's not drive through, eat it in the car on the way to the, you know, the ball game. 
It is a sit-down, full-on feast. And so he begins with image after image. And he says this, he says, he, and he's talking of Jesus. He says, he is the image of the invisible God. Now, don't run past that. Stop there. Look at that picture for a minute. What is he saying? He's saying that the invisible God has been made visible where, how, who? In Christ. He's saying that the incomprehensible God has been made comprehensible at least as much as he can be in the person of Jesus. He's saying that the transcendent God of the universe who sits on heaven's throne, has condescended to come off of heaven's throne, to take upon himself human flesh, and to enter into our humanity, get this, as a peasant, that he might relate to all of us, that he might identify with every single one of us, that he might reach out to and connect with each one of us, and that he might rescue all who come to him. Paul says Jesus is the image of the invisible God, and then he adds the next picture, the next painting. He says the firstborn of all creation. And by that, he doesn't mean the first created thing. He's not saying, you know, God the Father began to create and he started with Jesus, and then after he created Jesus, he created everything and everyone else. That's not what he's saying. The idea of firstborn speaks of his preeminence. He's saying he is supreme. He reigns supreme. It is his preeminence over the entirety of the created order. That is quite a claim to make in behalf of this man Christ, is it not? But how can he make that claim? Well, he tells us. Verse 16, he says, for by him, meaning Jesus, all things, not most things, not some things, not, you know, even just the really cool things, everything. He said, all things were created in heaven and on earth. Does that phrase sound familiar? Hang on to that. Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things, he says it again in case you missed it, were created through him and for him. You've got to stop as you're walking through the art gallery and pause and, and like take that in for a second. Because what he's telling you there is that that story at the very beginning of the Bible which starts with the phrase, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Hear that phrase? He's drawing straight out of it. He's saying that's a story about Jesus. And I know you want to say, no, actually, no, it's a story, Tom, in case you haven't read it. Uh, It's a story about the creation of the heavens and the earth. No, it's not. It's not. It involves that, but it's not that. It's a story about Christ. And by the way, Paul's not on an island with that. I mean, John the Apostle makes the same claim, John chapter 1. The writer to the Hebrews, same claim, Hebrews chapter 11. Jesus is the great creator God. Jesus is the great creator God. Jesus is the great creator God. What's the story? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Remember that? You know what that is, heavens and earth? Don't go to sleep on me. It's a poetic device. It's called a merism, okay? So is he speaking scientifically? He's speaking in poetry. This is clearly not this creation story, God's attempt to explain all of the chemical and physical and biological processes by which he brought about the heavens and the earth. He doesn't have his white lab coat on. He doesn't get the dry eraser board out. He doesn't pull out his dry eraser marker and start mapping it all out. He is not trying to satisfy all of our intellectual curiosities. He comes to us and says, okay, here's the deal, guys. I did it. I did it in six days. And... And he did it in such a way as to formulate a story that tells us about the Lord. 
In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, two completely different things, two polar opposites, two ends of a spectrum, utter ends of a spectrum. He's saying, I created both and everything in between, and then you see a picture of the earth. And what does it look like? It looks like me, and it looks like you apart from Jesus. Forgive me, but it's dark, it's dead, it's formless. Interesting word. It means that it's completely out of control. It's chaotic. I mean, it's just utter crazy chaos, and it's empty. And in six days, what does the Lord God do? He brings light out of darkness. He brings life out of death. He takes that which is completely out of control and crazy and chaotic, and He orders it utterly. And He takes that which was empty, and He fills it. And then, on the sixth day, having done all of that, with the world having been made ready now to be inhabited by the man, God makes the first man. Interesting story. He forms the man from the dust of the earth. No whiteboard there, by the way. He's not really... I mean, just... And he breathes into him the breath of life. And who is the source of life? And the man comes to life, and he is sinless, and he is perfect, and yet for the first time, God says, something is not right here. And what's not right is that the man is alone, and he needs a bride. And so the Lord God fashions a bride. But how does he make the bride? He takes the sinless man and he causes him to sleep. You know, it's interesting. I mean, since we're in the New Testament and yet we're in the Old Testament, since we're talking about Jesus in the New Testament and I'm showing you Jesus in the Old Testament, you're going to see it in a minute. You've got to take that idea of sleep for a second and think about it with a New Testament mind. Jesus speaks of sleep for Christian people or death for Christian people as a form of sleep and so does Paul. We had a funeral here yesterday. And we talked all about that. Jesus comes along and he says, Lazarus sleeps. And his disciples say, well, he's been sick. We should let him rest. Jesus says, no, 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 you don't understand, guys. He's dead. What's sleep? You've heard this. Every night at the end of every day, it gets dark. It gets cool. And we go into our little rooms, don't we? And in the darkness and in the cool, we bury ourselves up under the covers. It's a picture of death, is it not? I mean, you even say that. You don't even realize, but we've intuited that as a people. I remember when I was in high school, my mother could not get me out of bed to save her life. She would come into the room. She'd wake me up. She'd leave. I'd go to sleep. She'd come into the room. She'd wake me up. She'd leave. I'd go to sleep. She'd come into the room with ice cubes, stick them in my underpants. That worked. That worked. And then I'd hear her walking down the hallway saying to my dad, you know, waking him up is like waking the waking the dead. You make that connection without even realizing it, don't you? It's like God has built a pattern of death, burial, and resurrection into every single day of our lives. God causes the sinless man to sleep. Just keep all that in mind. While he's sleeping, the sinless man is wounded. He's pierced, actually. The Lord God wounds the sinless man while he's sleeping by piercing him in the side, and from that wounding he fashions a bride and he raises him from his slumber. Resurrection. Fascinating, isn't it? 
And then the creation story is done. And then we come all the way to the New Testament. And Paul pulls out that phrase, heavens and earth, and he's talking about Jesus. And he's saying, guys, I, think, I know you think you know what the story is really all about, but the reality is it's about Christ. The invisible God made visible, the transcendent God, you know, he condescended. Remember that? The incomprehensible God become comprehensible, entering into our humanity, clothed in our flesh, sympathizing with our weaknesses, identifying with us in every sense, yet without sin. Come as a peasant, accessible to all, to reach out to us, to identify with us, and to rescue us. And how does he rescue us? By assuming the stain and filth of our sin, all that is dead, dark, crazy, and empty in us. And God the Father then takes his sinless son, and he causes him to sleep the sleep of death. And while he's sleeping the sleep of death, by the way, he's pierced. Where? in his side. That's how they verify that he's in fact dead. And out of his wounding for our sin, God takes a people out of this humanity and he fashions for him by the power of the gospel a body of people that the New Testament calls the bride of Christ. And then the Lord raises him from the dead. He awakens him from his sleep. It's stunning. And Paul, who sees the risen Jesus and goes to his death, dies defending that claim. Wants you to see him. He wants you to see him too. He says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. He's pulling straight out of that story, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and what? Because this is important too, for him. Boy, that's a picture we'd like to run past. You know what our nature is fundamentally? I'll just speak about me and then you can apply it if it fits and it will. But just if it does, on the off chance that human nature never changes, we're all selfish, every one of us. Every one of us. And for every one of us, the daily struggle is it's really just about me. We analyze everything in light of us. What is this going to cost me? How much time am I going to have to spend on that? What if that, you know, what are they going to ask of me? What about this? And, you know, how this is going to work and how, you know, and it's all about us and our relationships are about us and our life is about us. We've got a little throne in our heart and there we are. Smiling or really usually not because it just doesn't seem to be quite right. And it's not if that's the way your life is oriented. Know the Word and live the Word, okay? But don't come to the Word expecting to find a God who was created to live for you. It's quite the other way around. We were created to live for Him. And here's the crazy part. When He is actually on the throne of our lives, when we are taking our directions and orders from Him, and we stop fearing this book for fear of what He might say and for the way that He might mess things up for me, quote-unquote. Because, you know, I'm running my life so well. When we come to His Word and submit to Him and to His Word and put Him on the throne of our lives and start to orbit around Him versus trying to get Him to orbit around us, what we realize is that's our sweet spot. It's like, oh, wait a minute, that's what I was made for. He's created us to be happy, but only in Him. It's fascinating. 
And so Paul says that all things, including each one of us, were created through Jesus and and for Jesus. And then he says, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That's so awesome. That's another picture in the gallery. That's one you've got to stand before and go, wow. It's like he's positioning Jesus in the center of every polar opposite that exists in the universe, and he's saying, in him they hold together. Think about that. Beginning and end to come together in Christ, right? Life and death come together at His cross. It's a tree of death to Him. It's life to us. Good and evil come together where His good overcomes our evil. Heaven and earth is resident in Him. He's the one who brings the two together, does He not? He is the heavenly man, and yet He's a man. God and man. Two polar opposites could not be farther apart, and yet in Him are brought together. And just as an aside, I can throw in a few more, in some cases, husband and wife. The common ground is the cross. Parent and child, the place of repair is at the foot of Christ. Brother and sister, you get the idea. Paul says, in Him all things come together, which means, by the way, that apart from Him, no matter how good we are at kind of keeping things together, things start fracturing and falling apart. And then he says, and He, Jesus, is the head of the body of the church. And so now He's not just preeminent over all creation. Now He's preeminent also over all of His people. And by the same standard, according to the same basis, if you will, He uses much of the same language. He says, for He is the beginning, the firstborn. There, There's that word again. But this time, He's the firstborn from the dead. He is the firstborn of a people who, though we die, will yet live. Jesus is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile, you hear that? To Himself every polar opposite, whether in heaven or on earth, making peace, how? By the blood of His cross. It's at the cross that Jesus holds everything together. That's the great place of reconciliation. That's why the cross needs to be in the middle of every marriage, in the middle of every business, in the middle of every hope, every dream, every aspiration, every heart, every family, every home, every life. That's where it comes together. That's what holds it together, and it's held together by the power of His blood. And now Paul gets kind of personal, and he paints a picture this time, and it's not a picture of Jesus, it's a picture of us apart from Jesus. And it's not meant to be rushed by. He says, and you who were once alienated, let me show you a picture who you used to be, he's saying, apart from Christ, or maybe today who you are. He says, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Doesn't sound very nice, does it? But it's accurate. He says, you were that person, but he has now reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death on the cross. The invisible God made visible entering into this world as a human, dying on a cross to save humans. 
and satisfying with his one death because he is also God. He's infinite. The measure of the sin of all of us. He says, And you who were once alienated, far away from God and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order for the purpose of, he's saying, to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. He's saying, take a look at the before and after shot here because it's really pretty cool. I mean, we got the before shot, not really attractive, but it is worth spending some time looking at. And now look at who you are. It's beautiful. It's amazing. Holy, blameless, above reproach before God. And then he says, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel, this true word of the true gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. He's like, we got this little fire of faith thing going, and what I'm afraid of is that you're going to abandon that true gospel by which we're going to build this thing so big that we're going to get to see it from outer space. Step back when we drive, you know, the mower up on top because it's going to explode, but don't abandon what got you here. Don't adopt the philosophies of the world. Where do you get the philosophies of the world? Everywhere! Where do you get the true word? Right here. Where does the philosophy of the world lead you? Because it's not to God. It's sort of like that earth that was a picture of us. Dark. Dead. Crazy. Void. And you know what the truth is? It's not difficult to see. I mean, if you, if you look around, you know, just look around. Look at your own life before you came to Christ or maybe now. Apart from Jesus, knowing and living His Word, there's not a lot of light. There's not a lot of life. There's not a lot of order. It's all just a little crazy. It's out of control. And there's no fullness and joy and satisfaction either. You see people pursuing a freedom as they define it, a liberty as they define it, love as they define it, free they even attach to that love, driven by nothing short of their passions, without any boundaries, without any restraints, without, quite frankly, much wisdom and ruining themselves in the process. It's not hard to see. It's kind of like when your kids start chasing after each other in the house. You ever experienced that? They're like poking and pitching and hitting and he, she slapped me and, and, and there's a little bit of laughing and then they're running around and they're jumping over furniture before too long and things are escalating and you've asked them nine times to be quiet because, you know, that's what you do. And then finally you realize you've got to bring it to an end and you just walk in and go, that's it, we're done. Right? You go over there, you go over there, you go on the computer, you read a book, you go to your room, you go to your room. You know, I mean, whatever it's going to take to separate it and stop that which is escalating, you do. And then they do what you did when you were a kid. They complain. They moan. You know, because you just don't get it, do you? No, they don't get it. You then utter the words that you swore you would never say. You say to your kids, hey, you know what, guys? It's all fun and games until somebody gets hurt. And somebody always gets hurt. Always. Always. Now, God is not the cosmic spoil sport. It's not. He loves so much He sends His Son, and He tells you that in the first pages of this book. 
with the very story of creation. His gift is one of light. It is one of life. It is one of order. It is one of fullness and satisfaction and joy in Jesus. But the truth is, freedom is found within boundaries. Within boundaries, we are set free. We can be free within certain boundaries. Liberty is established by law. I mean, this nation of all people ought to know that. Love, true love, is found in commitment. It's bordered by restraint. There is a wisdom for living skillfully in this world, and the Lord knows it, for He has established the moral order of this world, and then He's given us this book. And He says, guys, know this book. Live this book and be free. Know the Word, live the Word. And that's what Paul is laboring to help these guys at Colossians in the city that no longer exists, but all the rest of us as well, to do. And he rejoices in those labors. But notice how he describes his labors. He says this in verse 24. He says, now I rejoice in my, uh (laughs) uh-oh, sufferings. In my sufferings for your sake, he says. And then he says something a little confusing. He says, and in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. And that's alarming, isn't it? Because it sounds like he might be saying that maybe there's something lacking in Christ's afflictions. And you want to go, okay, Tom, so is something lacking in Christ's afflictions? And the answer to that is no and yes. It depends on what you mean. I mean, if by the afflictions of Christ, you're talking about the afflictions that he experienced and endured for our sin and our place, that he might hold all things together at the foot of his cross, then the answer to that is absolutely not. There is nothing lacking in that regard in the afflictions of Christ. And yet, if by the afflictions of Christ, you mean whatever it is that it's going to take to do and live out the mission of God and to pursue the building of his kingdom in this world until the day that he returns, then yes, it's lacking. The church moves forward on the Christ-inspired, Christ-enabled sacrifices and sufferings and self-denials of the people of Christ who, when they have the understanding of Paul, do it joyfully for Paul himself tells us elsewhere in his writings that as we participate in the sufferings of Jesus, he says, we'll participate one day in his glories. And he makes that great list of sufferings. It's pretty awesome. I mean, it's like, oh, man, I'm so glad I'm not him. And maybe I ought to want to be him. Because he says, you see all this big pile of stuff that I went through? It's nothing compared to the glory that God has stored up for me. Where do we learn that, by the way? It's a familiar refrain at this point, but it's in this book. Know the Word, live the Word. So Paul says, now I rejoice in my sufferings. I'm capable even of doing that, for I know that God is using these sufferings to build up His church, to say nothing of His own character. God's plan for us is not as short as our little lifetimes. His plan for us is all of eternity. He's building us for that, which makes our little lifetimes a little bit confusing at times. He says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for what? For the sake of his body that is the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. To do what? To make known the Word of God. To make the Word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations 
but now revealed to his saints, which is what? It is that the Jewish Messiah lived, died, rose again, and offers life freely, not just to the Jews, but to all of us, to people like these Colossians and you and I. He says, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of his glory, the glory of this mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, and nothing else. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone, for the gospel is for everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Side note, how do we mature in Christ? Knowing and living the Word. For this I toil, says Paul, struggling with all of His, meaning the Lord's energy, because His and yours and mine is not enough. That He powerfully works within me. That's what He does by His Spirit when you're living the Word. For I want you to know, He says, how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea, this other city located in the same valley as you guys. And for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is who? It's Jesus, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Jesus is the prize. He's the prize of this book. Know the Word, live the Word, and in doing so, come to know the invisible God who's been made visible. The incomprehensible God who is comprehended by us as best we can through the person of Jesus Christ, the transcendent God who condescended to enter into humanity as a peasant that all can identify with and to offer the bread of His body and the wine of His blood, that He might bring two very polar opposites together, you and God, at His cross. Know the Word, live the Word. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You uh, for this good Word that co that's contained in this letter that is ancient and yet modern. It's ordinary and yet in every sense so very extraordinary and that by Your Spirit comes to life in our hearts and in our minds, and as we bow before it in our lives for Your glory. And God, we thank You also for this great sacrament that we have the privilege now of partaking of together. We thank You for all that it represents, the cross of Jesus, where the God-man, the invisible God made visible, the sinless Son of God offered his sinless life as a sacrifice for each one of us. We thank you for the bread that was broken in Christ and for the wine that was shed with his blood. We praise you and I pray, God, that you would rightly prepare our hearts now for this moment. God, that you would fill us, not with food, but with your spirit. That you would sustain us, not physically with this little wafer and shot glass of juice, but that you would sustain us with the spiritual food of this moment, that you would create in us a faith 
that shows up in a life of faith. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.